Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Anita Steubenraw. She's a former Apple executive. She was able to pivot her success and experience into creating her own creative business. And as the founder of Cause Effect Creative, she's leading small business owners and entrepreneurs into an enlightened way of thinking and making decisions. In this conversation, we talk all about her origin story, her superhero origin story, and how she learned to take agency in her career. We're going to track her story throughout her career path and touch on different topics like working remotely as a creative and inspiring others and motivating others and their creativity through remote work and Zoom, and how to make effective decisions and have that inner reflection time and using meditative guidance to take advantage of not only your strengths, but those that are working with you and on your team as well. So I know you're going to really get something great out of this conversation. I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Anita Steubenraw. This week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Anita Steubenraw. Anita, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you. Glad to have you here. So we were kind of pre-chatting before recording, and we were talking about creativity and productivity, and I don't know exactly how I worded it, but I said, you know, sometimes the overlap of being productive and creative or vice versa can be a little bit of a a friction point. So we're definitely going to dive into that, but I'd like to set this up a little bit with some context in terms of your story and where you're from and what have you done and <laughs> all the good kind of stuff. You've you've been basically a a person that has pivoted a few different times. You've been a former Apple executive, but uh, you know, I don't want to steal your your talking points. What's Anita's superhero origin story? Um, my superhero origin story so I'm an artist. I'm a creative, like sort of to my soul, like to the core. Um, and I went to art school in Chicago. There's a whole other origin story about how I even got in by the skin of my teeth, like all that sort of stuff. But sort of major turning point was after graduating uh, and starting to work for Apple down the street in North Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And I was hired on as a creative. It was a new role at the time where they were looking for people who had teaching experience, they had retail experience, and they had a creative background to to teach professional applications to other pros in the industry. So I got like certified in Final Cut Pro, DVD Studio Pro, Motion, like all these apps. And then kind of the way the program happened was different than what people expected. Like we weren't flooded immediately with all these professionals. We were actually like sort of inundated by, you know, retirees who wanted to learn how to use a computer and email and things. And so it became kind of more like a one-on-one, you know, just little lessons. And with, and I love, I love, um, let me say elders. Uh, so it was lovely experience, but within about six months of being in the store, uh, one day my manager came by and asked me what I was doing the next day. And I was like, I don't know, 10 to six. I thought he was talking about, you know, my hours. And he's like, how would you like to go to California? And I'm like, yes. Why? <laughs> in that order. Uh, and it turned out that somebody in corporate wanted help making presentations. And, you know, did I know how to use Keynote? No, but I was going to learn on the plane. And so that happened and I got flown out, you know, to Cupertino to a number of different locations where they hold these conferences and things. And I did that for, I would say, a lot of more or less the first year I was in Apple. And eventually I got hired into corporate 
full time as kind of a one woman creative agency for the team that designed and built the retail stores. And that's where I did a bunch of presentation design stuff that went in front of Steve and the board of directors, all of these presentations trying to convince, you know, the board to dedicate untold millions of dollars to pretty uh, intense design, I'll say, and pretty intense undertakings. And the sort of like unexpected parallel story that's happening alongside this. When I was in college, I was super awkward, really shy. Um, I ended up actually taking a class called Flirting for Nerds. And the woman who led the class taught me about conversation starters. And I was like, this is a thing. There's a technique I can use. And I so I did something I'm really good at, which is like taking an idea to a ridiculous extreme. And so I used that as an excuse to start a blog called Indoor Boys. And it was basically an excuse for me to talk to smart, sexy guys. And all the time that I'm working at Apple, I'm working on the blog on the side. I mean, literally, I wrote it. You know, they ask you when you get hired what uh, sort of proprietary information or ideas or inventions you... I literally wrote Indoor Boys on my application. <laughs> um, I didn't want anyone to steal it. Uh, yeah, so I worked on that while I was in corporate. And I ended up landing an interview with Adam Savage from the TV show Mythbusters. And the woman who ran internal communications at Apple heard about it and invited me out for coffee and coffee turned into a job interview. And then suddenly I was hired as a writer at Apple. So going from visual design to writing, I was a writer for a while, I was an editor for a little while in internal communications. I ended up working on the project um, when Apple was reinventing its credo. I wrote the new credo and then I ended up as an executive speechwriter. And this is over a period of about 13 years. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty wild on paper. Um, it was pretty wild in person. Uh, you know, really a ton of amazing experiences. And simultaneously, you know, it took its toll. I mean, Apple's a pretty intense place to work. And, you know, as a lot of creative people are, you know, very passionate about what we do. We put all of ourselves and then some into what we do, um, sometimes to our own detriment. And so, yeah, I ended up getting um, pretty sick uh, kind of over and over and over again until the point where like I just I had to go. It was time to go. And there's a whole other story about how I ended up here, but. I'll pause there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's and you're calling that out a little bit there. It's like you've, you've pivoted or transformed or, you know, basically lateral slash upward to varying degrees promoted, in other words, through just one organization over and over again there just by showing, hey, I'm interested in this thing or somebody discovering that you have skills they weren't aware of and saying, oh, we have a place for you. Let's move you there. Let's put you there. Let's ask you, do you want to go to California? Do you want to write? Do you want to write speeches, do you, you know, et cetera, et cetera? And it seems like most people would say that's a normal career trajectory. However, intense, active, almost burnout work for 13 years, not to say anything bad about the company. I use most of their stuff. But it's funny because then you start to realize. So, so at what point in that spectrum of time there did you realize, I need to stop doing this because it is, um, it's not healthy? Like what were the what were the health signs that you started to to notice and and I'm not saying and then you stopped working there and everything was fixed but what were some of the fixes like awareness slash fix path what's that look like for you Yeah, I mean, so it showed up a lot of different ways. Like over time, you know, the job that I took in the retail design development team, um, it was a very intense team. Um, the senior vice president who I worked quite closely with, uh, reported to Steve and that, uh, Steve was very involved in the store designs. Um, so it just was a very intense environment. Um, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of pressure, and there was an, a lot of turnover in that environment. And pretty quickly with when I joined, um, I got sick, I got mono, um, and then I couldn't seem to get better. Uh, and I didn't understand why I didn't understand what was going on. And I ended up getting diagnosed with sleep apnea. 
I mean, and, and I, the, the extent to which this was um, a problem, I would be driving home and I'd be exhausted. I'd end up places where I had no idea how I got there. Um, apparently, my body was engaging in what they call like automatic behavior. Like part of my brain was sleeping. The other part was awake so I could drive. Um, so stuff like that, you know, I got an appendicitis, I ended up needing back surgery, like all kinds of crazy stuff, but the sort of major sort of rock bottom moment, um, I had just returned home from a trip, uh, supporting a senior vice president, um, from a public speaking engagement, which was kind of a big deal because Apple generally doesn't let its executives talk publicly period. And so the fact that I was there and I was doing this, uh, you know, it was kind of a milestone, you know, for, for Apple and for this leader. And I came home with, uh, food poisoning and I ended up getting so sick. I think I lost about three liters of fluids in 12 hours. And on the last of many trips to the bathroom, um, I passed out and I fell and I hit my head on a stool uh, that was in front of me before falling backwards and cracking my head on a travertine floor. And when I came to my partners there, thank God, because um, I was totally delirious. Um, I was also on a deadline. And, you know, in at this point, I think I was there like 12 years. I'd never missed a deadline. And suddenly I'm in an ambulance, you know, going to the emergency room. Uh, and all I can think about is the fact that I'm not going to be able to turn these talking points in. And so the first person that I messaged was my boss. And I was like, Hey, name redacted. I'm not going to get these talking points to you. I'm in the hospital. Um, you know, and I got the message back that you hope to get back, which is some variation of like, Whoa, that sucks. Uh, and then, you know, I knew the next message that would come would be some variation of, you know, what he actually said was, um, you know, sorry to be worky, but this particular job doesn't care about our feelings. What do you have? And what he meant was, you know, give me your notes for the speech in Dubai on Monday. And what I had was, uh, you know, x-rays for a possible broken nose and neck, a concussion and vertigo and a question of like, how the heck did I end up here? Right. Not just here in the hospital, but here at this moment in my life where my own health is such a low priority that this is acceptable, right? That this is an acceptable response and that this is the first person that I reach out to you know, for support. Yeah. Ugh. Obviously you've, you recovered and, yeah. you know, and everything's okay now. Um, yeah. This was a while ago, right? It's yeah. This was of, 2017. Yeah. So we're talking yeah. five, six years ago at the time of this recording and, but you still had some time, but this was the beginning of the end. In other words, this was, this was the beginning of the end yeah. and, and kind of amazing in a way, like, you know, prior to this, I, I'd known that I'd, woken up enough days in a row knowing that I wasn't happy. I mean, Steve had some version of a quote that, you know, he knew that if he woke up in the morning and wasn't excited about what was going on that day, something had to change. And that had been happening for me for long enough to know that I needed to do something, but I didn't know what. And, you know, when you're in burnout and you know, you want to do something different. The idea of going to another company, improving yourself all over again, it's just beyond exhausting. It's demotivating. It's debilitating. It's demoralizing. So I just didn't know what to do. And this event, I was like, okay, when was the last time that I was happy, right? When was the last time I felt connected to meaning, to purpose, to joy, and it was like back when I was in art school. And so I thought I needed to make art again. So I look around my apartment. It's really small. There's not that much space there. I also want to travel. So I thought maybe I could combine these things and get an Airstream trailer. I can turn into like a portable art studio. So you do what you do next. Naturally, you go to Craigslist and you just look and you see like, can I buy one? Well, I was, you know, not expecting 
Airstream trailers to hold the value that they have as well as they have. I had no idea how expensive they were. And then I was not expecting to come across an ad that just totally changed my life. The ad went something like for sale artist retreat center with gallery in hot springs, New Mexico. And it opened something like, are you an artist who's always wanted to make a living making art? Ever wish you could live in a beautiful location surrounded by other artists while making a living making art? It went on, you know, and by the time I got to the bottom of this ad, I was in tears because it was everything I ever wanted, but didn't think was possible. Didn't think was available to me, not without winning the lottery or I don't know, some, some magical set of circumstances, but here it was with a price tag on it. And my partner was like, you could buy that business. And it just woke me up. I met the woman who was selling that business. It was super simple. The business model was like a place for people to stay, a place for people to create. One of those places was an Airstream trailer. Nice. And the universe can be super subtle sometimes when it sends us signals. Uh, This ad was coming from a place called Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. (laughs) That's where it was located. And ultimately, I didn't buy that business, but it woke me up to the possibility of being able to do that. And within three months, I was in contract on this property here in Murphy's, California, that I now call the land of make and believe. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So were you still at Apple when that ad came through and it kind of was like, oh, I didn't I wasn't even thinking of the possibility, but you were kind of yeah. thinking, let's see if it's even possible. You were looking for the airstreams and it wasn't necessarily the making of I, I would say I, I question 
if it was the making of the art or if it was something else, you, you asked yourself, when was I last happy that I can remember? And it was that time period. Yeah. And you kind of did a, I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you can, I want you to correct me. Tell me how true this is. It's not necessarily that it was that, that you were making the art. It's that maybe there was something, there was more to it than just that. Right. It, but, but that was part of it. Yeah. I mean, it was a whole time period, right. Where like I was unabashedly pursuing my passion, right. You know, all through high school, my entire goal was to get into art school, to get a full ride. That was the only way I was going to be able to go to college. My dad's an artist, right? He studied painting at KU and struggled to put food on the table. So, you know, all growing up, my dad's like, whatever you do, don't become an artist. And, you know, in my youthful hubris, I'm like, yeah, but I'm a better artist than you are. (laughs) I was arrogant. Yeah. But, you know, when I did get into the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, when I did get the full ride, when I was there, I mean, I was I was in it. I was I'd grown up. We grew up with no money. Right. So I wouldn't know what it would be like to have money. Right. So be an artist if you're going to be struggling anyway. So, you know, and that part of it is actually why it was so hard to leave Apple because I was one of the only people that I know from art school who was gainfully employed as a creative, right? And at one of the world's most admired companies. So to walk away seems crazy, you know, even if I knew. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most people would say, you wait, you one, you have a solid job, regardless of where it is. Two, it's at that place. And then three, you're doing something related to your field, like you'd be crazy not to, but that's kind of the definition of opportunity debt. Something that you talk about where it's, well, you, you define it, but you talk about it all the time. Yeah. I mean, opportunity debt is an interesting concept. So it shows up when uh, in a power dynamic, especially one where you're in a professional environment and you have uh, someone you're reporting to where an earned right or a privilege is presented back to you as a favor. So this is something like, you know, when I first started in corporate and uh, I had done a lot to prove myself and I came in, you know, in a job role that had actually nothing to do with what I did because they didn't even know what a creative was in that team in that capacity that I was in. I was the only one. So they had assigned me a role of being like a coordinator, senior coordinator. Coordinators in the team actually coordinated travel and paid like, you know, construction invoices and things to subcontractors and all that sort of stuff. I didn't do any of that. But because I was hired into that category, I was capped by the span and I wasn't paid commensurate with the folks who were in Apple's marketing communications team for the kind of work that I was doing. So when I advocated for myself to get a raise, my boss brought up the fact that I'd had surgery for sleep apnea. And, you know, wasn't I grateful for that? And, you know, you I can see from your especially like, but what does that have to do with isn't that a benefit that's deducted pre-tax or post-tax or however it's decided by you, not them, and yeah. so on? Like, And isn't it available to everyone who is yeah. here, not just to me as a favor? But, you know, I was so young in my career that I knew that inherently this wasn't right, but I didn't understand, like, how to address how wrong it was or in what way, you know, to stand up for myself. And things like this happen a lot especially to folks who tend to have uh, less power in a given dynamic. So women, people of color, the disabled. So one of the things I love to do in the work that I do as a writer is to name things that are like happening in the world so people can start to see them, right? This is an experience. It's certainly not unique to me. Um, And I have not been charged in some of the most egregious ways one can be charged with opportunity debt. But without a name, it's hard to identify and it's hard to do something about. So 
this just came about, the concept came about as a prompt from, you know, Women's History Month or uh, or someone was asking me about, you know, what holds women back in the workplace. And I was just having a conversation with my assistant, Meg, about her own experiences and my experiences. And that's where this concept came from. So it's a concept, you know, I've, I've written about at length. If you go to my blog on Medium, Cause Effect, I have a piece called The Cost of Opportunity, The Real Cost of Opportunity, and go into detail. There's all kinds of studies and things that are cited. And it's something I care about. But what I find more interesting, actually, is the act of naming these kinds of things and giving name to the unnamed. Well, especially because opportunity debt is such a subtle thing. It's it's an unspoken kind of agreement that you don't know you're agreeing to until you find out in the fine print later, in a sense. Yeah. And because it's unspoken, uh, you know, it's subject to constant change. The terms are always changing. The goalposts are always further out. There's no way to repay it. Right. You know, by telling me that, by making me feel indebted to Apple for surgery that was life-saving and life-changing, right? They got me to work harder. They got me to put in more hours. They got me to be on call. They got me to skip major milestone events in my family and my life because I felt indebted, right? And I don't think that this was like a conscious choice to be exploitative, you know, on the part of my boss, but it's pervasive in culture. And, you know, it's this idea of like kind of quid pro quo, like I do something for you, you do something for me. But when that someone is at a power dynamic and a power level that's not equal to you, it's not going to be in balance. It's definitely a symptom of, of culture whether it's culture at large or the culture of whatever organization you're part of, it's one of those things where when we talk about building good culture inside of companies, again, it's, it's not about what you state your culture is. It's about what's actually lived out. Yeah. Another example of this was when I was trying to stay at Apple and start to build, you know, the land of make and believe I was going to try to do it where, you know, I worked remotely, you know, here one week and I was in the Bay area one week and sort of switch off back and forth. And, you know, there was no set policy at the time. Remote work wasn't a big thing there, but there was no reason I couldn't do it necessarily. I had a stellar track record. I had tenure, I had all this stuff. Um, And I had the support of a number of senior folks across the company, but it came down kind of to my middle manager. He was old school and he liked to see butts in seats. And, you know, he knew that if I got to do this, I would owe him. And I wasn't okay with that. I mean, that whole dynamic was part of the reason why by the time I left, you know, text messages from him would give me panic attacks, right? Like it just, there was no way to pay back the debt. And I shouldn't have been indebted in first place, right? Like I was doing my job and I was doing it well. Uh, well, luckily that chapter closed and then you moved on and yes. you've been working, you know, you've been doing your own thing ever since in various ways. You've been working remotely as a creative leading teams, etc. I'm curious, obviously everybody kind of went remote in the most recent history, but you were doing it a little bit before them and to a certain extent, what, you know, kind of before and during COVID and even now air quotes post COVID, so to speak, so to speak, um, (laughs) what have you seen in terms of remote work and that transition, especially when it comes to creatives, like what have been the struggles and what have been some of the ways that those struggles have been overcome or even continued struggles? Yeah. I mean, so I'm a creative who processes a lot of things verbally, Right. And so having someone to conversate with and just think through ideas out loud is something that I miss, you know, and really miss when I first moved out here and was trying to find my feet and trying to find my routine and my process and all of the things. You know, I've found a number of different tools that support the way that I work, you know, and even getting clearer about understanding how my brain cognitively processes information. Like it's a never 
<laughs> it's an ongoing journey learning about myself uh, and how to best support the way in which like this happens. I'm, I'm swirling my hands around my head because whatever's in there, all of that. So, you know, finding tools that support the way in which that I work, finding humans that support the way in which that I work, creating the conditions for work, and really, honestly, undoing some of the toxic learned behaviors from corporate culture. You know, that was most of my career was in one company, really. So, you know, I haven't been diagnosed, but I suspect that I have ADHD. And one of my coping mechanisms is an ability to just force myself to like do a thing, you know, sit down and just crank it out, get it done. I can focus really deeply. It comes at a cost later, but I can just sort of plow through and it's gotten me, you know, it's gotten me this far, but I recognize here, you know, I'm in charge of myself now. And I notice every once in a while, I'm still doing that. Right. I'm still being like, don't leave your desk until you finish this thing. Don't do it. And it's not like anybody at Apple was ever sitting there over my shoulder saying you can't leave your desk, but you had to get stuff done. And you had, you know, this much time to get that much stuff done. I used a tiny gesture and a large gesture. And, you know, I don't have to do that anymore. I can unlearn some of those patterns. I can take naps when my body tells me I need to take naps. I'm in a room right now where there is a day bed, right? Like, that's where I take naps when my body says you can't work anymore. Or if you keep trying, it's not going to be fruitful. It's not going to work for you. And even finding other like, so I keep saying tools, but, you know, for example, like to do lists, right? I've always tried to use them and then I'll end up with sticky notes. I've got a whiteboard with sticky notes all over there. I've got like, you know, journals over here. I've got like things on my computer, like so scattered. And anytime I would try to put things in one tool, it just kind of never worked. And I realized only very recently, I think one of the challenges that I've had is that I can't see them even though they're they're written. I just can't see them in terms of how they occupy space and time. And finding this app that hybridizes like Todoist and brings it into my calendar and actually shows this task is going to take this much time. And if it doesn't happen, I just say it didn't happen and it finds more time for it later. It's life-changing because I can finally start to visually prioritize and see things because I am trying to do so many things at the same time, right? Like I run an agency, I support clients, I'm starting a podcast, I'm building, you know, a retreat space on 14 acres. There's a master site plan. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And if I don't have methods to support the actual getting of things done, I can just sit here and stress, like find states of anxiety because what should I do when I have 70 things that I need to do? I'm curious what that tool is. You mentioned Todoist. Do you know what the other component side of it is? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not being paid by any of these folks. I'm just still <laughs> testing out their apps. But um, the other one is called Reclaim.ai. Okay. Like Reclaim I've Your Time. Not heard of that. Sounds amazing because that is one of the things that I know a lot of people have issues with is to-do lists not being something that is tied into the reality of time and space, so to speak, especially time on the calendar. So, yeah. And I think I struggle with sort of time blindness. Like yes. I assume I can get so many things done, you know, in this much time. And I, I have, you know, occasionally I can, but not always. And it's not a thing I should sort of depend upon. Right. And it's not the way I want to live. I would love to have a lot more balance in my life. You know? Yeah. And it's been interesting. I mean, I think there is this tension, as you alluded to at the beginning, right? Between creativity and productivity, they can seem like they're at odds, right? Where they're like divergent paths. And for me, I find that when actually I can follow a state of flow down the path of creativity, it is more productive than if I sort of force myself onto this other path towards productivity as if it were like a temple and a deity that I'm going to like, you know, worship or something. Um, that just doesn't, it doesn't yield experiences, outputs, results that are as rich as when I do follow a state of flow that just like, you know, it's like idea after idea, you know, inspiration, the words just come, like whatever it is that I'm working on, it just is there. 
And it can be frustrating because you, you know, deadlines are real. And, you know, an example right now, a week from yesterday, so next Tuesday, Airbnb has um, the deadline for uh, their OMG fund. I don't know if you've heard of this, but Airbnb is giving away a hundred grants of a hundred thousand dollars for people to build really interesting places for folks to stay on Airbnb. Well, I've got 14 acres. I have a vision for this being an event and retreat space. I am definitely applying. And up until yesterday, I've known I need to work on this. And I would sit down and I would try and like, it was just kind of not coming. And it's not like the application is even that hard. I mean, it's 400 words, more or less, to describe your idea. 60 words to tell them who you are, 10 words for a title, right? I can work with words, but it just wasn't coming. And until yesterday, I could just feel the moment had arrived. I was like, ah, here we are. Okay. The words were coming. The, the clarity was there, you know, and as much as I would like to say I have a magic formula for like creating that moment when it's necessary, uh, I don't, I can just recognize when it's there. A lot of people would say that the structure of a productive life, so to speak, can get in the way of being able to one, set yourself up to get into that flow state, that state where when it one that you could, that when it shows up, you can work on it because you uh, can shift things around. But two, the other piece being showing up consistently, like, in, do you have any kind of way, like it wasn't there yet, but you knew that, it, well, you kind of knew, or maybe you did know, you knew eventually it will come. Yeah. What, what do I do in the meantime? Or is there certain kind of practices, rhythms, routines, et cetera, that you find again, it's not a put the quarters in and just keep pulling the lever and hope eventually it comes, but consistency of showing up rhythms, routines that kind of nurture that flow state coming and getting there. What is your, what is your perspective, your experience been with that? Yeah. So I probably do have some routines and processes and things, but I think the biggest thing is actually a mindset. So for me, I firmly believe that ideas like once you conceive of them, ideas exist like outside of ourselves, like it's there, it's in the ether. Sometimes what we have to do from that point is act kind of like an archaeologist. We need to like dust off the sand. We find its edges. It sort of emerges. But adopting that mindset and that point of view takes a ton of pressure off from having to invent something, right? If you imagine the opposite of that being like, I need to invent physics, I need to invent molecules, I need to then put them together in some sort of form shape to achieve some objective. It's so much harder than thinking, okay, even with Apple's credo, right? Like, if somebody had said, you know, we want you to sit down and write all that Apple is and aspires to be in 171 words or less, it's paralyzing, right? Like how, how it's impossible, but by believing that the credo itself already existed, it was my job to find it. It was my job to uncover it. It was my job to hear it. And to hear it through the voices of like the 65,000 people that work for Apple and that care deeply and passionately it was 65 at the time, I'm sure it's more now, but care deeply and passionately about why they're there. It made it so much more accessible and so much easier to hear and find and listen and write like as things came. And I know when something comes because I can feel it somatically in my body. You know, sometimes it literally feels like I'm getting hit by an idea. Um, it happened the other day last week when I was thinking about the tagline for my show, the podcast I'm working on. The show is called Hyperactive Imagination. And the tagline hit me and it felt like it hit me like coming through like the upper back right quadrant of my brain, like going through towards the floor like a lightning bolt. And I started laughing out loud uh, because when it hit me, it was so obvious the tagline was a high voltage channel for creativity. And I was like, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. And by having this mindset where ideas are real, right? We can see them. We can find them. They exist. You know, then you can start to have a playful relationship with them. 
You know, you can talk to them if you want to. You can ask them, hey, what do I need to know about you? Right. Like, where should I look for you? You know, what what do you know about yourself that I don't know yet? Right. And you can find out what comes. It's amazing. It's amazing what can come through that way. Well, and even what you were talking about earlier, where you like to have sort of water cooler talk, but also just like idea bouncing back and forth kind of stuff. Verbal analysis, in other words, I'm very much the same way. And by being able to do that with somebody else in regards to an idea, it's like you're both kind of dusting it off, you know, as if it's a fossil, so to speak, and you're discovering it together and somebody can, you know, somebody else is over at a different angle and they're doing something and then they say, hey, come look. And then you're like, oh, and then, you know, by them having an insight and that bouncing back and forth. And and that's a lot of what creative work is to a certain extent other than then, well, now I know more of, of what that idea is. Let me go off and try and iterate. But I think that's maybe also then that also touches on the remote creative air quotes problem is because you want to have these come together moments and then these go away moments and and back and forth. How do you encourage creatives in various forms, jobs, positions, whatever, when it comes through on remote? What does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, because I am remote, right? Like I'm in a rural part of California. It's very rare that I'm in the same physical space with clients or with like team members. So we use tools like Volley. It's a, a video driven messaging application. I know people that work there. I love Joe? that you just mentioned oh, Josh. Yeah. Uh, Mitch, who, who's been with there yes. a few months. Mitch and I used to work together. Still great friends. So, hey, Mitch. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but by the way, shout out to Volley. Love Volley. Yes. Shout out to Volley. Yeah, no, I love Volley because it gives you, you know, a bit of the best of both worlds, right? Like in the moment that you have an idea or you have a question, you can ask it. Right. And you can send it to the person who is the best recipient for that. And if it's convenient, if it's the right time for them to respond, they can respond real time. You know, you can have that kind of a conversation if you want to, but you can also respond when it's the right time. And that might mean, you know, after, you know, kids are put to bed, after a deadline is met, after whatever it is, but it gives you that, you know, the body language that we like to have with Zoom. It gives you that face-to-face kind of human connection that we crave, especially if we're isolated in our own spaces and not interacting with a lot of humans. But it doesn't require our butts to be in seats at desks for hours and hours at a time. And, you know, it's hard for me to sit still. You know, I do it when it's important, you know, but I need to move more often even than I do. And this gives me the ability to do both things and to be productive at the same time. Yeah, you're describing it really well. I mean, for me, it's it's this hybrid. I did not expect to be talking about Volley right now, but I'm going to take the opportunity to do so because it's so cool. One of the things that for a long time people would go off on Slack positively because they were like, it's so much better than email. Emails would I see Slack as just an iteration of email, to be completely honest. Volley gives you this variety of of it can be video, it can be images, it can be text only, it can be, uh, you can drop links in there. It's asynchronous. Like I love it so much more than <laughs> Slack or email combined or separated, yeah. whichever your preference is. But anyway, there's a lot of um, bonus there. I've got, I mean, again, I've got volley threads and, and chats with people that that's the only place they're at. And it's perfect in that way because we're not doing social we're not private social. It's it's private social in a better way. So. Yeah, that and like for, you know, entrepreneurs, I think there's tremendous potential for it to be a way for prospects, clients, like potential partners to engage with you so quickly without having to wait for this like back and forth, find an opening in a calendar, like all that sort of stuff. That's how I met Josh. I started using Volley and I was like, this app is freaking cool. I'm sending Josh a Volley. And then like within that day, we were chatting back and forth and five questions, you know, it was, we were talking about branding and, and things Volley was actually going through. And it was, it was awesome to have like real connection. The time span of those messages all added up together, probably 15 minutes, you know, but to get to a real place of connection and actual like sort of brainstorming that quickly, it's, it's pretty magical. Yeah. 
I don't know when this episode's coming out, probably somewhere around the time that I've announced that there's community for this show on Volley where people can talk to each other and me using Volley and throw in questions for upcoming dedicated Q&A mailbag episodes. So you're he- probably hearing it f- here first now. So take the opportunity to to show that out there. So, yeah. I love that you're doing that. I want to do something similar um, with my podcast. So I will be checking back in with you to see how it goes and what I can learn from you. Awesome. Awesome. So moving back to that burnout topic from earlier, obviously it's been a while now. It's been five, six years plus. What has your learnings from that burnout back then helped you in terms of dealing with it, in terms of the warning signs, the, you know, proactively staving off burnout? now in this more recent season? Yeah. Um, you know, the burnout from that time period at Apple, uh, to life now. Uh, so I've been running my own business for, I think about a year, just almost a year and a half. So this is like 2019 springish when I got really sick again and I didn't understand again why. And I started to see all these doctors and like nine months later, ended up getting diagnosed with uh, Lyme disease, which probably had been present at the time at Apple when I was getting sick over and over and over again and didn't understand why. So I'd had a major, major flare up that lasted, you know, almost two years where, you know, when my body told me I couldn't do something, it wasn't lying. And, you know, it was so challenging because, you know, here I am in a place that I love doing work that I love with clients that I love and so passionate about what I'm doing. And there's, you know, a very finite amount of energy that I have to spend on anything at any given time. And what it did is really force me to get very clear about what my priorities were in who I worked with, what kind of work I did, what kind of work I was making myself available for. And honestly, even the rates I would charge. Because if my own energy was so constrained, you know, it is very valuable to me and very valuable the work output that I can do in the amount of time that I do have. So all of those kinds of things just became very clear and the way in which I work like now, like, I mean, you know, I kind of joke about, you know, the day bed in my office for taking naps, but when my body tells me I have to sleep, I recognize that it's not lying, you know, and by being more aware of what my body is telling me earlier, right? Because there were a lot of signs earlier on in Apple before I hit rock bottom, you know, that something wasn't right. And my ability to push through isn't always a good choice. I have a lot more respect for my body and it's amazing what my body can tell me, not just in terms of signals that something isn't right, but also signals that something might be right. So sort of bizarre example, but this has been sort of more in my life since moving out here. Matcha, for example, green tea. The first time that I drank this, and this is after I had been diagnosed with Lyme, I tried a bunch of different protocols to get well. The first time I drank it, I swear to you, I could feel my body saying thank you. It was like head to toe tingles. My body was like, this is what we have needed. And I was like, whoa, I've, I mean, I never drink tea. Does all tea do this? Right? Like I didn't. Okay. I will, I will drink you. I will drink you every day now. And honestly, drinking matcha every day has been the most consistent tool to help me feel better uh, mentally, energetically, all of it. And I struggle with brain fog and sometimes even almost like aphasia, but specifically like finding nouns for whatever reason, which as a writer can be quite a struggle. My fingers can find different nouns. My mouth have a harder time like finding them. It's bizarre, but matcha helps. It really does. It's a powerful antioxidant and it happens to taste good. Yeah, I haven't drank it as much recently, but there was a season where it was very, very prevalent and, and ubiquitous in a lot of ways. So, well, uh, I I want to kind of close things out by giving people an opportunity to find out more about you, your retreat space, et cetera, as you're working on it, building it, following along with your agency and everything. 
directing people towards where your podcast will be and yeah. so on. So let's start listing stuff off that I'll, I'll link up to in the show notes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, folks can learn more about me and what I do at my agency at causeeffectcreative.com. You can see some of my work there. You can you know, sign up to get notified when the podcast is going live there. I'm on socials at Anita Visions. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, even. I do a lot more fun stuff on TikTok than I do most other places. Yeah. And I think there's a link tree in my Instagram bio that links to, you know, the Medium blog and all of that sort of stuff. So I am wherever people want to find me. Perfect. Perfect. I will go and grab all those links and uh, add them to the show notes for this episode so people can find you. Anita, it's been great talking with you and you've shared some great stuff. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's been a total pleasure. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Anita Steubenraw. I know that I did. It's always great to hear somebody who has taken agency. It's rare, I think. A lot of people don't realize the amount of agency and ability they have to take hold of their career and their decisions. They kind of become passive as time goes on, maybe having certain points where they wake back up again and take agency. But this is a great story. And uh, if you enjoyed this, I would love for you to share it with somebody that you, maybe you know somebody who needs to take agency right now. Share this with them. Think of that person. Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice or over on the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Share it with them. Let them know about it. And also let them know there are shortcast versions of Beyond the To-Do List on Blinkist to find those short seven to 10 minute podcast episodes packed with punch towards your productivity, head on over to beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Check that out. Thank you again for sharing. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.